0: whole front of the stage was just covered in like six or seven foot stalks of wheat. It was like this very full ripe harvest and uh, I just you know that's that's coming you know harvest just on the altar those who are being saved and delivered and repenting and I know you guys are going after that going after the harvest but uh, there was some it was so real that it kind of shocked me like I I, you know i didn't for a minute, didn't even remember that I had my eyes closed. I thought I was actually seeing this, but just this very full harvest at the altar. And so, Lord, we do thank you that we're living in days of harvest. We thank you, Lord, that it's on your heart for the lost to be saved. God, it's on your heart for this church to be filled with those who are new believers being discipled. And one of the things that uh, right after that that I saw was uh, kind of a, uh, a, a stadium event where the gospel was being preached, but I saw this church serving paella, which I had to look it up. I knew it was a Spanish kind of meal, but I feel like there's specifically outreach to the Spanish community that, that you are going to have an impact in. So I saw you serving food to that community. And so, Lord, let it be so. All right, well, I wanted to share something today that's kind of been an ongoing drama that I've been observing. I think this is something that many of you uh, have either been tracking with or that your spirit is going to recognize as we kind of walk through some things. Uh, The Lord spoke something to me in 2016 uh, that had a lot to do with what was happening in the election and I think it's continued to play out over the last, however long that's been, six years or so. But he spoke the words to me one morning, right as I was waking up, he said, beware the spirit of Tyre, beware the spirit of Tyre. And, and I, I thought that was maybe where Jezebel was from, but I looked it up and sure enough, that was the city that Jezebel was from. Her father was a Phoenician king uh, and Tyre was one of the main cities of that region And that region had a particular religion that had certain sacraments, including uh, lots of sexual immorality, like there were prostitution rites. Whenever Jezebel was going to be judged in 2 Kings, it says that she's going to be judged for her prostitution uh, and for her sorcery. And so there was a lot of occult and witchcraft that was involved in that religion, and there was also child sacrifice that was involved in that religion. And so that was, of course, around the time that Hillary Clinton and Trump were kind of head-to-head, and I think we've seen a lot of that spirit of Jezebel that has been wreaking havoc on a generation over the last six years in an accelerated way, and so... It really caught my attention that um, probably uh, two months ago, I was driving to work one day, and I was listening I was listening to a podcast uh, by a guy named Matt Walsh, who talks a lot about abortion, talks a lot about kind of the gender confusion that's in the culture, and he was talking about abortion, and as clear as anything I've ever seen, I just saw how the blood of abortion was actually a demonic sacrifice that was empowering principalities. And I heard that Travis preached that sometime in the last couple Sundays. I don't know that I'd ever heard anybody say that before, but it just struck me. And I just saw how the reason that that's been such a contested battle, it's not just about abortion, it's about seats of authority in high places where in government and media and education and kind of all the seven mountains of influence there are seats where people are sitting with a voice and whoever sits in that seat unless they're redeemed unless they're covered in the blood they come under the influence of that spirit and the 63 million babies I think it is that have been aborted have actually been empowering these principalities. That's why the insanity has just increased dramatically over the last couple years. There's, there's been less resistance in high places to the deception and the insanity that's been kind of blasted from the mountaintops. And I think that's why we've seen such an acceleration of deception in the last couple years. It's because there is a, there's an affinity for the deception in the highest places of government right now. But I do believe that that is connected to the spirit of Jezebel. And I think it's also uh, connected to the orphan spirit. And I think actually that Jezebel and the orphan spirit are either one and the same or they think about it together. You know, I don't really know how to define that. But if you think about it, Jezebel, we know, is related to immorality. And we know that, again, there was child sacrifice, which is parallel to abortion. And we know that whenever Jezebel breathed out threats against Elijah, he fled for his life, even though he had just called down fire from heaven. He had just had all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets killed. He'd had a great victory, but that spirit came on him. And the next scene, we see him shivering on the edge of a cliff completely clueless about who he is and who his father is, the orphan spirit had come on him. You know, he, he did not know his identity. And he got even to the point where it looked like a spirit of suicide had come on him or a spirit of death had come on him. He's saying, God, it is enough. Go ahead and take my life. He's saying, I am, I'm done. I'm worthless. And I do think there was something about what he gave into there that even though he wasn't immediately taken to heaven in a whirlwind, it wasn't long after that that the Lord actually had to replace him because it seemed like he kind of gave that that thing a place of authority in his life and the Lord raised up Elisha right afterwards. Elisha actually fulfilled several of the things that God said Elijah would do. Elisha actually fulfilled them. And so... The orphan spirit and the Jezebel spirit, I think, are very closely linked together. And you see that in a lot of different ways. If you think about what is behind abortion, well, the spirit of Jezebel, yes, because promiscuity often leads to abortion, but also the orphan spirit, that fatherlessness spirit that has plagued a generation so that you have a whole generation who does not know who they are. They don't know who their father is. They are in an identity crisis. You know, fathers give identity. Our father in heaven gives identity. You know, fathers named babies throughout ancient history and up until the modern times. That's still sometimes what happens. But one of the roles of fathers is to give identity. And you've got a generation now who is so utterly confused about their identity that you know, you've got the, the transgender movement with demonic power that is just trying to redefine reality uh, like never before. And you've got a, a deceived generation that is so disconnected from the natural order that they're in the streets celebrating abortion and fighting for abortion. You know, you could see that as soon as, uh, as soon as the opinion was leaked from Justice Alito that indicated that Roe v.ersus Wade would be overturned, you saw this demonic rage rise up. You know, people in the streets just demanding and celebrating, just the most brazen way, the most vile and disgusting way, demanding that they be allowed to shed that innocent blood, and it was because. Again, it wasn't just about abortion. It's not about women's rights for sure, because abortion is about taking someone else's life. It's not about taking the mother's life. Very seldom is it about preserving the mother's life. The demonic rage was about powers and principalities not willing to lose the source of their power that for the last whatever it's been, you know, 50 years, uh, that has been fueling some of the greatest strongholds in our nation. And so I think that Jezebel and the orphan spirit are very closely connected. Um, And I think that in the same way that uh, God's answer to Jezebel was the spirit of Elijah and then Elisha who received the spirit of Elijah, he got the mantle of Elijah. I think in our day God's answer to the crisis of our times, is the spirit of Elijah. And just like Jezebel and the orphan spirit seem to be kind of one and the same, it seems like the spirit of Elijah and the spirit of adoption are one and the same. So I'm kind of teaching, kind of technical on the front end, but we're going somewhere with this. You know, what does it say in Malachi 4 that God's going to release at the end of the age before the coming of the day of the Lord? He says, I will send Elijah, and whenever he comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. That sounds like a description of the spirit of adoption, the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. We also know that whenever Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind, he had told Elijah, if you see me whenever I'm taken up, then you can receive a double portion. And he did see him. Number one, because even though Elijah was trying to ditch him all along the way, you know, you stay here, I'm going to go on. And Elisha just clung to him. So he saw him with his eyes, but I think he also saw him. Even though Elijah didn't seem to be a great father to him, he saw as Elijah was being taken into the whirlwind, he honored him as a father. He said, my father, my father, and then the mantle fell down to him. And uh, in the same way that this um, spirit of adoption, or I should say in the same way that the, the orphan spirit steals our identity, the spirit of adoption gives us an identity. You know, whenever someone sees their father, whenever someone knows their father, then there's a certain confidence and there's a certain sense of identity because they know where they came from. They know what's in them. They know what stock they come from. And whenever we know God our Father, whenever we see Him as He is, there's a certain confidence, there's a certain identity that we can walk in because we know that our Father is the one who created the universe. We know that He's the Almighty God and we know that we can be confident that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, then how much more will our Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? We know there's a certain kind of confidence and an identity that's imparted to us. And so I've just kind of been observing the way that things have played out and the way that this orphan spirit has really uh, impacted a generation, the way that the Jezebel spirit has really impacted a generation But haven't you been encouraged to see some of the victories that we've been contending for for decades have actually started? We've actually started to see breakthrough just in the last few weeks, obviously with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And then two days later, there was a Supreme Court decision about prayer in schools, about the coach who uh, got permission to uh, pray at football games. There was another one right after that, but it's like... God's starting to move. There's probably no issue that's been contended for an intercession more over the last 50 years than this issue of overture, overturning Roe versus Wade. And now that that's happened, you know, there's probably going to be, depending on how many states either restrict or ban abortion, probably another million babies per year that are born in America. And so... In the natural, there's now a cry for adoption to be the answer to all of these babies that are going to be born. You know, if, if it's not easy to get an abortion, if it's not easy to terminate these pregnancies, then there needs to be a people of God who rise up with the spirit of adoption and actually adopt these babies. And we know 2 Corinthians 15 tells us that the spiritual is not first, but the natural And after that, the spiritual. So there's a principle that often things happen in the natural first, and we can see sometimes what God's doing in the spirit by watching what's happening in the natural. And so in 1948, Israel became a nation. That's the natural, you know, covenant people of God or the, you know, natural Israel. And then over the next few years, So so Israel became a nation, they got their promised land back, and over the next few years in the spiritual, in the church, the spiritual people of God, we began to get our promised land back in the late 1940s and early 1950s with the latter rain healing revival. And so we started to get the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of our promised land, which is we'll do the works that Jesus did and even greater works We'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. We'll cast out demons and cleanse the leper, raise the dead. And so something happened in the natural and then we saw a manifestation in the spiritual. In 1967, uh, you had the, was it the Six Day War, where again Israel takes back another portion of the land that was promised to Abraham. So they got another portion of their inheritance back, And that same year, 1967 and 68, was the beginning of the Jesus People movement, which kind of flowed into the charismatic renewal. And the church got back part of our inheritance again. This massive rush of evangelism that it seems like, from what I've been able to observe, that many of kind of the main leaders of the apostolic, prophetic, awakened Holy Spirit-filled church came into the kingdom during that wave in the Jesus people movement. And so the natural is first, and after that, the spiritual. And so right now, in the natural, there is a cry for adoption to be the answer to this victory that we've just gotten, where many more babies are going to be born. But in the spiritual, God is releasing the spirit of adoption on His people which is the answer to the crisis of the hour. It's the answer to the orphan spirit that has so confused a generation that they don't know who they are, that they've totally lost their identity. It's the answer, the spirit of adoption is the answer to the Jezebel spirit, which has infected a generation with immorality and promiscuity and even witchcraft and a cult. You know, anywhere that... A Jezebel spirit is thriving. There is certainly witchcraft behind it. There is an occult backbone to the influence of Jezebel. And so God is releasing a spirit of adoption to be the answer, to be the counter to this demonic assault on our culture and on our generation. And so I want to talk about that spirit of adoption for a minute. Romans chapter 8, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible... Uh, There's a a section of Romans chapter 8. It's starting around uh, verse 12 and really going all the way through, really through the end of the chapter, but especially through about uh, 27 or so, 12 to 27. But really the whole chapter. Um, I had a dream early on in my walk with the Lord where I was preaching a message out of Romans chapter 8. And I was preaching about the groaning that's in creation And then the groaning that's in the people of God and then the groan of the Holy Spirit that brings forth sons of God in the spirit of adoption that are the answer to the groan of creation to be delivered. And so I had a dream. I was preaching that message. That was on a Friday night and then Saturday passed. And then Sunday morning I go to church and the pastor of the church, first time that he'd ever done this, the only time that I know of, uh, about 10 minutes before he got up to preach, as, as worship was winding down, he came over and said, you know, I don't think I'm supposed to preach. I think you are. Do you have anything? And I said, well, I'll just preach the message I preached in my dream on Friday night. So I got up and I preached that message out of uh, Romans chapter eight. And ever since then, it's been kind of a life passage for me. And we won't read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but I do think this is a a major, uh, this is, Serious revelation for the church in our hour. So let's, uh, let's start in verse 15. We'll just hit a couple highlights. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And so this is saying that when the spirit of adoption comes on us, it delivers us from fear. Again, that's part of the orphan spirit. Fear, because if you don't know who your father is, I've got to take care of myself. You know, there's no one to protect me. There's no one to provide for me. And so anxiety comes on people when the orphan spirit comes on them. Fear comes on them. Insecurity. And this says when the spirit of adoption comes on us, it delivers us from bondage to fear and it awakens a cry in our spirit where we begin to call out to God as Abba, Father. You know, it's this, uh, Abba was was a term that, an entire, uh, like a great house where they would have, you know, uh, sometimes multiple families and servants and, uh, and workers of the land, all would be living together on one piece of property. And everyone called the father of the house Abba, except for the slaves. They were not permitted to call him Abba, but everybody else was. And so when the spirit of adoption comes on us, It delivers us from that orphan spirit, that slave spirit, and we begin to call God Abba because He's the one who is the master of the house. He's the one who provides everything we need and who ensures that we're protected, ensures that we're going to have the inheritance that belongs to us. And then the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It's by the spirit of adoption that we step into that joint heirs with Christ reality. It's the John 14, 12. Everything that I did, you will do and even greater things. You are joint heirs. You are a son or a daughter of God with an equal inheritance to Jesus, joint heirs with Him, and we access that by the spirit of adoption. And then it goes on and it talks about The creation, that is, uh, we'll, we'll just read starting in verse 21, it says, creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So why is creation groaning? Creation is groaning Because it's under subjection to the curse. It's under corruption. And so that means that outside the soil is under a curse so that it can only bring forth fruitfulness with toil. It means that the rose bush has thorns on it because there's a curse on that beautiful flower. It means that your neighbor who's under under bondage to depression or anxiety or a spirit of suicide who's under maybe a spirit of poverty, they are groaning under the curse, crying out for a deliverer. Creation is groaning to be brought into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. This is spirit of adoption language. How do you come into the liberty of the sons of God? It's by the spirit of adoption. So creation is groaning in birth pangs or travail to be delivered. And then it says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? So what it's saying is that not only is creation groaning, crying out for a deliverer, crying out for someone to step into the fullness of the sons of God, it says we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are groaning too. We're groaning for our inheritance, for the redemption of our body. We know there's a day coming whenever the justice of God will make all wrong things right whenever sin and sickness and Satan will be fully dealt with, and there's a groan in us saying, God, Jesus paid for the redemption of humanity, and until we see the fullness of everything that He paid for come forth in our lives and in our neighbor's life and in the rose bush and in the soil, until we see the fullness of of the manifestation of the sons of God and everything you've promised, there is a groan in us. There's something in us that is dissatisfied with where we're at. Even though we're thankful for what God's doing, there's a sense of where we're called to be and a revelation of where we're at. And all you can do in the gap is groan for something more is groan and long and say, God, I have seen by faith, I've seen in dreams and visions, I've seen in the lives of men and women of God who have walked in this reality, and there's a groan in us saying, God, would you make me the answer to the cry for a deliverer? Would you give me the inheritance as sons, the fullness of what's been promised and so there's kind of a harmony of the groan of creation and the groan of we who have the Spirit. And then it says the Spirit groans. I call it the threefold groan. It says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings, too deep for words or groanings that cannot be uttered. So, even the Spirit is groaning. There's a groan in the Spirit. He has a desire to manifest himself in sons and daughters. The Spirit fully understands, perfectly understands what God wants to release on the earth. You know, the Spirit knows that there's a day coming that the earth is going to be covered with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. And so the Spirit is looking for someone to partner with, someone who's groaning for more. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our lack, in the revelation of the gap between where we're at and where we're called to be. And so the Spirit of adoption is whenever there's a kind of a synchronization of the groan of the believer saying, God, I want to walk in the fullness of everything that you've promised, along with the groan of the Spirit saying, is there someone who will give me a place to fully manifest my glory, along with the groan of creation saying, is there a deliverer for me? Is there someone who can break free the bondage off of my life? And so that's kind of what this groan is all about. And now in um, June, in early June, I had this dream uh, where I was at a stadium. It was right before uh, the, the event in Kansas City. It was like... Um, the Send and the Awaken the Dawn. All th- there's like three events that happened in a few days in Kansas City. Did anybody either go to that or watch any of that? Yeah, it was a kind of a major event across the nation. People traveled from all over the nation and the world to go to Kansas City and to pray for a third great awakening in America and a great harvest in America. And uh, it was a very powerful event. And this was, I think, the night that that began, I had a dream that I was at this stadium. I didn't know that it was that stadium, but I was at a stadium, and uh, I was in various locations all around the stadium. And I was uh, I was with a couple people that I knew, and uh, I was in deep travail. You guys know what travail is. This is what Paul said in Galatians four. He said, "I." Uh, I am in travail with labor pains until Christ is formed in you. That's what he told the Galatians church. He said, I am in travail. I'm in a birthing kind of prayer. Travail is birth pains. It's just old English for labor. And he says, I am in travail over you until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, I'm looking for the fullness of Jesus to come forth in His people. And so in this dream... I'm in travail and I'm all around this stadium in different places and I kept falling on the ground and I was just, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't an unpleasant experience, it was actually awesome because all at once... I was, I was remembering all the moves of God of the past. You know, all the things I've read about. You know, everything from the first great, I mean, Reformation, first great awakening, second great awakening, John G. Lake, Azusa Street. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about stories and I'm remembering the way that God has moved in times of great harvest and all of this is kind of fueling this groan inside of me but I'm also aware that I'm not back in the past, in the First Great Awakening or in Azusa Street. I'm in this present moment where there's crisis, and even though I'm tapped into the revelation of what God has done in the past, I am aware of the need of the hour, and I am encountering God's glory, but at the same time I am groaning that God would do in our day what He has promised like He did in those days what He promised. And so I'm, you know, I would stand up and I only could stand for a few minutes and then I'd be back on the ground again just kind of you know, groaning in travail. It was actually an incredible experience. In the dream I kept saying, God, please let this not just be a dream. And then I would wake up, I was actually sleeping on my couch, I think because my kids had filled my my bed and there was no longer room for me. So I was sleeping on the couch and uh, I would wake up out of the dream and I was in full blown travail whenever I would wake up. And then I would go back into the dream and it would pick up right where it left off. And in the dream, I, I kept seeing people that I knew and it was like whenever my eyes would lock with them they would go into travail exactly like I was. The the same groan would be awakened in them and they would, you know, not all of them would fall down, but they would go into that sort of deep, you know, cry for God to do in our day what the prophets have promised, what Jesus Himself declared He desired for the end of the age. And it, it was like there was this harmony of the church in travail And I think it was actually somehow connected to what was happening in Kansas City at the same time, which was 60,000 people coming together to pray for the nation. And so I came out of that experience. And ever since then, there's been a level of that that groan that's kind of remained with me. You know, it wasn't just about a dream. It was about something kind of being reawakened in me that I haven't walked in really for quite some time. But I believe this is something that God's doing across the body of Christ. That He is awakening a desperate cry for breakthrough and for the power of God to be released on His people because the need of the hour is so dire that the people of God are awake and aware that without power and without revival being released... There is no hope for a generation that is utterly deceived by a spirit of Jezebel and utterly confused by an orphan spirit. There is, I think, a a desperate cry for more that's awakened in the heart of the people of God. And for many of them, it will manifest in some kind of birthing prayer that actually brings heaven's desire into the earth. That's why it's called birthing prayer. It's where you know, we, we carry something in the womb of our spirit and we are laboring and travailing over that vision or that promise or that prophecy until something is birthed in the natural order, until something from heaven breaks through into the earth. It's just like labor pains come on a woman and she knows that there's something on the inside that's got to come out. There's something that she's been carrying for a long time that she's been adapting her whole life to, to be sure that what she's carrying on the inside is going to fully come forth. And I think many are carrying something in the womb of their spirit and they're adapting their life to be sure that what God has planted in them, the seed that God has planted in them is going to come forth. And so I woke up from that dream and uh, ever since then I've been lugging around this backpack of like 20 books uh, that hold the testimony of awakenings and revivals of the past. And I've been going page by page through them looking for a very specific thing and finding it almost without exception. First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, Azusa Street, Uh, And on and on and even on into the 50s healing revival and on and on throughout church history there is a non-negotiable precursor to God impacting a generation in a way that changes history and it's a spirit of travail that comes on his people. I mean, it's everywhere. Jonathan Edwards, you know, you don't really, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think of Jonathan Edwards as someone who used a lot of charismatic language. He did some because they had a lot of crazy manifestations. But he was a theologian who wrote, I have the complete works of Jonathan Edwards on a Word document. uh, And it is two Word documents that are like 10-point font that are 10,000 pages each. Just wrap your brain around that for a second. 20,000 pages, 10-point font, Word document. So the guy was like a scholar and a bookworm. He wasn't somebody that you would think that he'd be rolling on the ground in travail, right? But Jonathan Edwards, in the lead-up to the First Great Awakening, his wife Sarah said she would walk by his office and she would hear him crying out to God with sobs and loud groans crying out for God to move in his generation. And he actually wrote extensively about travail that happened during the First Great Awakening. And and I want to say something up front here that I'm not just talking about, because I know some people who have walked in this kind of travail prayer uh, who, you know, make strange noises and are loud and you know it can be a very peculiar thing and it can be totally God even though it can look very strange but it doesn't it's not always that and it doesn't have to be loud and strange and you don't have to roll on the ground edwards tells this story about this woman who he gives an, as an example of someone who carried a spirit of travail And he said this woman was uh, uh, impacted by the First Great Awakening and was a part of what God was doing in their region, but she started to carry the burden of the Lord for her son to be saved. And she started to labor in intercession over her son to be saved. And he was running around with women and staying out all night drunk and all that kind of stuff. And so she's praying for him, you know, hours a day. And she didn't know how much longer she was going to be on the earth. She felt like he had a call of God on his life. And so she entered into travail. And for her, it looked like sometimes weeping, sometimes speaking her son's destiny over him, sometimes uh, speaking to him with passion, pleased to submit to the call of God on his life. But she was carrying the burden of the Lord for him to be saved. And he talked about one morning where she had spent hours praying for her son, travailing, laboring over his salvation. And he comes in from one of the meetings. He he walks in the door and he says, Mother, I've just been to one of these meetings and I've just accepted Jesus. I've just been born again. And he writes that this woman, with a smile on her face, hearing that that the burden of the Lord that she carried had just been accomplished, With a smile on her face, she just fell over and went right on into glory. She had accomplished her mission, she had accomplished her purpose, and she just went right on to be with the Lord. Now, I don't think that is the main way that travail operates. But my point is, that was a woman who carried the burden of the Lord for her son. And Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the fathers of the First Great Awakening, pointed to that as one of the most apt examples of the burden of the Lord and travail that he had seen in his day. And this is something that manifests in many different ways. Uh, There is a guy named uh, David Brainerd, who was Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. And Brainerd had been kicked out of Yale for uh, mocking some of the leaders, some of the professors... And uh, because he got born again and he didn't think any of them were saved, he was probably right. And so he got kicked out of Yale for, you know, saying that they weren't saved. And uh, he decided to go be a missionary to the natives because he was no longer going to be accepted in any of the churches. And so he devoted his life to trekking through the wilderness, sometimes days at a time, by himself in the rain and the cold, getting lost in the woods and finally finding some tribe of 50 men, women, and children out on a mountain somewhere and spending months with them, sharing the gospel, trying to learn some words of their language, uh, and then he would be on to the next tribe. And he kept a journal all during his travels, and you can watch his prayer life intensify greatly over the course of a couple years. And he begins to write about Uh, these encounters he would have with God where he would be gripped with the presence of God, where the Spirit of the Lord would move on him powerfully and he would say things like, The Spirit of the Lord came on me and helped me with power for two hours. Or he would say, I was in an agony of souls and I began to pray on my knees with snow all around me. And when I opened my eyes hours later, there was an eight foot circumference of snow melted around me where the heat and the power of God had just melted the snow all around me. And so he begins to enter into this groaning intercession over the tribes And for the first year that he's preaching to them, they're threatening to kill him, they're rejecting him, they're throwing rotten vegetables at him, no fruit whatsoever. But he enters into this deep groaning for the power of God to be on his preaching and for souls to be converted. And one afternoon in August, heaven begins to break in as he opens his mouth. It starts, he's in a house with Uh, Just a few people, and he's just having a normal conversation with them, and all of them begin to weep simultaneously, and they all get born again. The next day, he goes, and he's preaching to uh, 55 men, women, and children, and he says, "...as I began to preach, it was like a powerful wave came at once and knocked all of them to the ground, and they began to groan and cry out to God for mercy, and all of them were born again." And then the next day, as he's traveling back to his makeshift home that he had made, all the women in this village were waiting for him at his house, asking him, what must I do to be saved? And he preaches the gospel, and they're all born again. And for the next year, everywhere he goes, it's like the book of Acts. The power of God is manifesting on his preaching with like dramatic uh manifestations, people falling to the ground and writhing in the dirt, crying for mercy, confessing their sins, repenting of their witchcraft and their drunkenness, he carried a burden of the Lord in his spirit and he labored over it, crying out, realizing that what he needed to release and what he currently had on the inside, there was a great gulf fixed between and he was laboring until God released what was needed to fill up the gap. And one after another, these fathers of revival tell these stories of this spirit of travail that would come on them or others. And as they labored over something in the spirit, power would begin to be released. And I think this is something that God's releasing in our day. You know, uh, Isaiah 66 talks about Uh, Isaiah 66 mirrors the end of the age. Isaiah is like a mini Bible. I, I know probably most of you have heard that. You know, 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters of Isaiah. There's a lot of parallels. But Isaiah 66 is like the end of the age. And it talks about the bride at the end of the age. And it talks about Zion being in travail at the end of the age. And it says, as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth. And it says, can the earth be made to give birth at once? Can a nation be born in a day as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth? And so the idea is that when this spirit of of groaning comes on the church, when this desperate cry for more comes on the church, then nations will be born in a day. As far as I can tell, there's two things that we're called to groan for in this season. One of them is we are groaning for the sons of God to come forth. We're groaning for sons and daughters to step into their inheritance. We're groaning to be the answer to the groaning creation, to be delivered from bondage. That's one thing that we're called to carry a deep groan for. The other thing that we're called to carry a deep groan for is for nations to be born in a day. It's for the great harvest to come in. In Matthew 13, Jesus makes this astonishing statement. He says, the harvest is the end of the age. In other words, the closer and closer we get to the end, there will be a marked increase in harvest. The lost will be saved. And in that same parable, Jesus talks about sons of the kingdom that are sown into the earth at the end of the age. And these sons and daughters of the kingdom, the ones that God releases that are walking in the John 14, 12 greater works, that are walking in the fullness of what mankind is called to carry, they are the ones who reap the harvest of the earth. And so there is a groan and a cry that God's releasing on His people both for men and women to walk in the fullness that we're ordained for and for harvest in Wilmington, for harvest in the United States, for harvest in China and Ukraine and Russia and North Korea and that the nations of the earth would be born again, would be born in a day. Sons and daughters being born and nations, harvest groups, being born again. That's what the labor is all about. Revelation uh, chapter 12, there's this picture, and I'm kind of winding this down, and then I want to kind of move into some ministry time and activation. But Revelation chapter 12, there's a picture of the bride, again, the bride at the end of the age. Uh, it's a twofold picture. In one sense, it's a picture of Israel giving birth to Jesus with the 12 tribes on her head. But I want to talk about... You know, there's the natural and the spiritual. I want to talk about the spiritual for a minute. It's a picture of the bride in apostolic authority. She has 12 stars on her head. She is clothed in the sun. You know, we're told to put on Jesus Christ, to put on the sun. And she has the moon under her feet. Jesus said, Behold, I give you authority over all power of the enemy to trample on serpents and scorpions. So she has the moon under her feet. And this bride is in labor and she gives birth to a man child. That's the language that's used a man child. It's an oxymoron. Is it a man or is it a child? It's a picture of mature sons and daughters coming forth at the end of the age as Zion travails as the church enters into that place of the desperate cry for more, saying, God, do in my generation what you've always done. God, I'm not satisfied with what I'm walking in. I've seen a vision for far more, and I will not be silent. I will not hold my peace. I will give you no rest until you do in my life what you've declared that you desire to do through your people. And I think that's what the groan is about. And this is what I want to kind of encourage us with as we maybe move into a time of praying together is I think that there is a tendency, I know that there is for me, and there's often a tendency when we hear about the great things that God's done in the past. And and I could spend literally hours just telling the stories of how this kind of spirit of, of gripping, consuming prayer has led to remarkable demonstrations of the kingdom and mass salvation of the lost. It, it marks the pages of church history unmistakably. But I think when we hear that, there can be a tendency to disqualify ourselves. There can be a tendency to kind of hear and say, Well, that, that's awesome. I'm glad that God did it then. But, you know, and God might do it in their lives, but I don't know that He'll do that in my life. As a matter of fact, we can read church history or we can even read the scriptures and we can see the way that God has moved in power or we can see the way God is moving in power in other people's lives. And then we can examine ourselves and catch a vision of our own barrenness and we can recognize that we don't have what we need. That we're not the ones who are yet bringing the kingdom and you know, bringing in a mass harvest of souls. But our encouragement is the Spirit is groaning to help us in our weakness. It says the Spirit helps us in our weakness with groanings that cannot be uttered when we don't know how to pray as we ought. There's something about Realizing that it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God, the authority, and the kingdom of heaven. There's something about realizing that it was the barren bride that brought forth Samuel. You remember, Hannah was barren and she was being mocked by her husband's other wife, who was saying, Look at all the, look at everything that my life has produced, look at everything that God's blessed me with. And Hannah was being mocked by that, but she had a sincere cry in her heart saying, God, my womb is barren. I recognize where I'm at and where my desire is to be. And she was in such a travail of prayer in the tabernacle that Eli thought she was drunk. But she was crying out saying, God, give me a child. It was her barren womb in a day whenever there was a famine of the word of the Lord. There was no widespread revelation. And God needed someone to have a pure heart and a qualified womb to bring forth a Samuel. And it was the desperation, I think, brought on by the awareness of her barrenness That made her trustworthy to bring forth a Samuel that she would fully dedicate to the Lord and say, God, if you'll give me this gift, you can have it. I don't need to control it. I don't need to keep my hands on it. I just want to be the one that you use to bring forth the answer to the crisis of our day. But God, it'll be yours. Just let my womb be the one to bring this forth. It was the same with Elizabeth. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're crying out to God for a son. They have a prophetic promise that they're going to have a son. But decades go by, and I think, what, they're in their 80s or they're in their 90s whenever they get the visitation of Gabriel saying, your wife is going to bear a child. And years of laboring over the promise, years of contending, saying, God, the need of our hour is a messenger crying in the wilderness saying, make way for the coming of the Lord. And her womb in the place of desperation and barrenness was qualified to bring forth John the Baptist, the prophet that was needed to prepare the way for the Lord. You remember whenever Elijah has his confrontation with Ahab, and he tells him, you better get home because it's about to rain. He says, if you don't go now in the chariot, the rain will stop you from getting back to Jezreel. And then he goes up on the mountain, and he does the strangest thing. He puts his head between his knees, which, I mean, it's crazy, but that that's a birthing position. That was the... Ancient Israel birthing position, he puts his head between his knees and seven times he's crying out to God and he's sending his servant to go look. And as he is in that place of contending for a promise from God that would save the land, they were in famine and drought for three years. And he's contending for something until a cloud the size of a man's hand comes up out of the sea and then the rain came and it was a downpour. And Elijah was a man of like passions, just like us. Yet he prayed earnestly, and God sent the rain. And so I believe this is actually already happening in the lives of many of us. There's this revelation of the need of the hour, and there is this desperate cry in our own spirit. And whether we realize it or not, some of you have begun to carry the burden of the Lord. Some of you have begun to carry something. God was looking for a trustworthy womb. And some of you, the groan over what you don't have is actually what qualified you to carry something that God wants to release in this hour. To care enough that God would get what He wants in a generation that you mourn over a barren womb Actually, make someone trustworthy to carry something that will release the will of God in our family or our city in this generation that desperately needs adopted sons and daughters who carry the spirit of adoption to give a generation their identity, to break off of them gender confusion and confusion over their identity and this spirit of Jezebel that's come on a generation to corrupt them with lust and promiscuity leading to abortion and irresponsibility. There are many who are carrying something in the womb of your spirit that is meant to be an answer in our day. And if that's you, if if you know that you're carrying that groan for something more to be released either through your life or in our day, I want you to go ahead and stand. And we're just going to agree together for a moment and just see what the Lord wants to do. God, we thank you that you're releasing the spirit of adoption. We thank you that there is a sovereign cry that comes on us from heaven that causes us to cry out to Abba and that releases an identity to us that we cannot get from anywhere else. And God, we ask on every one of us you would release the spirit of adoption. We pray in Jesus' name you release a spirit of adoption that breaks off the orphan spirit. We ask you that you would allow us to carry something that breaks the power of a Jezebel spirit. Release the spirit of adoption. Shikarapare pekite kishon zian dambare pekite pekite Yakara pekito koshon zian zambale pekite pekite Elijah was a prototype. He was. He and Elisha, other than Jesus, no one else walked in what they walked in in a generation. And God, we ask You that You would release the spirit of Elijah in our day. And God, I speak right now to everyone carrying the burden of the Lord to see the spirit of Elijah released. To see sons and daughters walking in their inheritance. God, to see a demonstration of the kingdom of God in the age to come in our day. God, we speak to the wombs of those carrying a cry for more. Those who are carrying a groaning, desperate prayer to see the Holy Spirit come on our lives and our weakness, to see God move through us and around us in such a way that it answers, that it matches what we've seen in our dreams and what we've seen by vision, what we've seen in church history. God, we say release the spirit of Elijah in Jesus' name. There's something that that many of these who wrote about this in history, they called it the agony of desire. They called this kind of prayer the agony of desire. They talked about the desire that's awakened in us when we encounter the presence of God, when we touch something in the heart of God that changes us forever. There's forever a desire in us to walk in that kind of communion with God. And that desire is what drives us. It's what makes us hungry and thirsty. But they call it the agony of desire because there's also that wrestling over our lack. There's that wrestling over where we're called to be or what we haven't yet seen in our lives. And I just, I've been wrestling over this and I've been kind of you know wrestling to find language for this. But I want to encourage you to make room for that in your life allow that wrestle, allow that groan, allow that sense of dreaming big, allow that big dream to rise up in your heart. And if you agonize over it, if you, I remember Travis and I were talking about this earlier. He's had the same thing happen in his life, but One of the first times I saw Sean Boltz minister with this high-level word of knowledge, I fell in my kitchen floor, rolling on the ground, groaning and bawling my eyes out, saying, God, would you release that? Through me, would you release, it doesn't have to be like that God, but whatever my inheritance is, whatever my portion is, I want to be a deliverer of the souls of men. I want to see the lost saved and the afflicted healed. I want to see the kingdom of God break into people's lives. God, do through me what you've promised and what you desire. But I want to encourage you, make room for that groan. And this is a weird word, but I saw someone, I I saw as we were back in the prayer room, a pair of Adidas shoes and I was looking at everybody's shoes in here. I actually walked around looking at everybody's shoes, but um, who is, who had a pair of gray Adidas shoes right now. I saw at least one person earlier had a pair of gray Adidas on. Raise your hand so I can see who you are. They might have left, but I saw the Adidas with my own two eyes. All right, well, if you've got Adidas and you're not raising your hand, then you're missing a powerful word. I'm just saying so. (laughs) Well, let me ask this. Does anybody have, because specifically the Adidas that I saw were like old, like uh, they weren't old, but they were the style of like Sambas or Gazelles, like soccer Adidas. Does anybody have any like those at home? They they can be any color, but they've got kind of the big tongue usually, or they've got the stripes on the side. Um, all right. Well, I, might, I probably should have given that word uh, whenever I saw the shoes. Okay. Yeah, could be for. might uh, know but she wears that all the time. Okay. Yeah. I I think I saw. Was she here earlier? Okay, all right, well that's okay, I don't want to take too much time on that, but I'll share it as a corporate word. Hey, Jude has Adidas on, I didn't even realize that, that's awesome, this is my son. Very cool, well, so the word that I had was, people used to say that Adidas meant all day long I dream about soccer, like that's what the letters meant, it's not really, but that's what people used to say, all day long I dream about soccer. And I felt like this was a word to allow the, to allow yourself to dream big, to dream about the biggest things that you want God to do in your life, to think about what would it look like if God powerfully had his way in your life. And I actually want to pray that over the church as well. I was going to share it with an individual and in the church. But, and so God, I ask you for Jude that you would give him big dreams. God, that you would give him a great vision of what it looks like when the glory of God descends on a boy and he is gripped by the dream of God for his destiny. I ask you, give God dreams in a powerful way, daydreams to Jude about his destiny. And God, I pray that over Morningstar Wilmington God, allow the daydreams of seeing the power of God flow through their hands and the authority of God mark their words. Allow the great dream of God's heart to uh, almost obsessively fill the minds and the spirits and grip the faith of this people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.